0: The first time I tried to become a teacher, back in 2001, I failed. I applied to become a New York teaching fellow, a government-sponsored pathway to recruit new teachers from non-teaching backgrounds. Coming off a week of the flu, I was still hazy, arrogantly unprepared, and did not yet respect the professionalism required to enter the teaching profession. When asked the final interview question, how long do you intend to work in education, I stammered, Having never truly considered the answer, five years, maybe longer? I knew I had nervously made a naive, irretrievable mistake. The very next week, applications were due for Teach for America, TFA, a national nonprofit organization that nurtures diverse networks of education leaders with a commitment to eradicate educational inequity. As they're anchored in values of social action, impact and community development, I knew instinctively that TFA were my people. I was hopeful I could join this dynamic and inspiring group of educators, advocates, policymakers, and community members. Thanks to my unsuccessful application to the New York City Teaching Fellows, I was armed and ready to ace the TFA interview process. I was thrilled to be accepted into TFA and spent the next months preparing for my new life as a teacher. My first classroom was in a public school in the Bronx. I will never forget my first day of teaching, waking up at 5 a.m. to take the D train up to Tremont and Grand Concourse in the South Bronx. The school was built within the shell of a 19th century hospital, decorated with aged and decaying filigree, with a five-story walk-up to my classroom. In my hand was a package of multicoloured construction paper, some markers, and an empty lesson planning book. I nervously greeted each of my students with a handshake, as we were told to do in TFA, By 9.30am, when my fourth graders were playing the name game, I realised I had no idea what time the lunch period was, or even where my students were supposed to go to get their trays of food. I distinctly remember leaning down and asking Lewis, a nine-year-old in my class, ''Uh, what did you do last year for lunch?'' He replied, ''We were with the little kids, but now we're in fourth grade? I don't know.'' I remember announcing to the class, ''We're going to take a tour of our school.'' After two loops marching around the campus, we finally found the lunchroom and thus our year began. Lewis was late to school most days. I quickly realized he was known as the toughest boy in the toughest neighborhood, a neighborhood where my fourth graders were happy to point out where they thought the drama and deals were made on the streets. Lewis was too thin. He had a wild glimmer in his eye, no friends, and was far below academic standards for his age. Lewis was the student in my class who was the loudest when he could not complete the assignment, the quickest to start an argument with another student and the first to wrangle his classmate's attention when he did not immediately get what he wanted. All too frequently, Lewis and I would end the lesson yelling at each other. I would yell at him, sit down and calm down. He would yell back at me, whatever, and push all his work onto the floor. It was 2002 and it became quickly apparent that he still ruminated continuously on the 9-11 tragedy. All the children in my first class were still focused on 9-11, in part because many of their parents worked the night shift cleaning office buildings in downtown Manhattan and told me they watched the news footage on the evening television, replay after replay. When Lewis refused to do the work I assigned, and not knowing what else to do, I allowed him to draw while he waited for me to help him. Every day... His drawings were the same, two tall rectangles and a plane crashing into them. Eventually, we decided to collect them all in a folder, and soon the folder was bursting with new versions of the same drawing. I did home visits with Lewis, going to his apartment building three blocks away from the school to connect and to work together with his caring mother. His mother welcomed me into their home and tried her best to reinforce the good behaviour lectures I was giving Lewis. But his mother's language made me uneasy and escalated because sometimes she lectured him in the same way I would. I sensed that Lewis would vacillate between embarrassment and shame during those visits. It was only later that I reflected and realized his mother and I were using the same language and neither of us was making a visible difference in improving Lewis's behavior in the classroom. I thought the only way I could create a classroom based relationship with Lewis was by matching his escalation to prove to him that I could handle the drama. I adjusted the entire class for him, and there were days when I felt like I was only really teaching one student. I made every single mistake with Lewis and that class of students, including bribing them to stay on task with candy. That is until one day, Lewis and his friend broke into my closet to steal the candy supply. I handled this transgression in the same way I did most days, by making a big scene, and aggressively and loudly lecturing them for an hour. I was out of control. This anger propelled me, and it would last a long time. I would spend most days feeling hyped up on adrenaline until 7 p.m., collapse at night, and begin again the next morning at 5 a.m. Without any coaching or supervision to help me understand classroom stresses, I began to mirror the dysregulation of my students. Most of the teachers in my school did. Walking the halls of that school, I could hear echoes of teachers raising their voices. It all made sense and was reinforced in the staff room. If they yell at you, you yell back at them. If they were angry, you show them that you were in control by being angrier than them. This cycle was daily, hourly, sometimes by the minute. There were days when Lewis came to school and pushed another student in line first thing in the morning, and I would yell at him in front of all the other students before we walked up the five flights of steps. Teaching for me in these first years meant being buzzed up on cortisol and adrenaline. I know I was so dependent on it that in the mornings, I would double step up the five flights to get my heart going, because I could not face the kids without being hypervigilantly ready for the day. I justified my anger and aggression in a number of ways, and I had many reasons to explain to myself why I behaved in the ways I did. My naive assumption that my students came from homes filled with escalated behaviors convinced me that anger was the most effective way to communicate to them. However, my misguided logic convinced me that my anger would be more conscious and for the right social justice reasons, these kids will learn. It was only years later I realized I was mirroring and modeling the escalated behaviors of my students.